Hello, and welcome back to the Customer Conversations podcast. I'm host, Sean Boyce. I would like to welcome my guest today, Jeff Ignacio, who is the Head of Revenue and Growth Operations at Upkeep, managing the go-to market systems and enablement teams. Prior to working at Upkeep, Jeff spanned a variety of roles at both large tech firms such as Accenture, Intel, Google, and high-growth ventures such as Vizier and PatientPop. Hello, Jeff. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Doing well. I think right before our conversation, I was telling you about California. We have some wildfires in Northern California. I'm here in Southern California where it's, it's a scorcher, right? Where 90, 100 degrees and just kind of staying indoors, social distancing and uh, spending time with my family. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for sharing. And before we kind of dive into the topic that I'm excited to talk to you about today, can you give for our listeners a little bit more information about your background? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm our head of revenue operations over at Upkeep, supporting our three go-to-market departments from marketing, sales, to customer success. I'm responsible for really aligning strategy and execution across systems process enablement and kind of our insights and advisory. Now, prior to Upkeep, I you know worked in a variety of sales operations roles at different size firms. And this year, saw an 8x growth in revenue from kind of that early stage to uh, you know those early majority customers. And then after that, I moved down to LA where I worked at Patient Pop, which is a far more transactional selling motion, selling to uh, private clinicians in the healthcare space. And then before that, I lived a whole different life in consulting and in finance, working at uh, Google and Intel, uh, really supporting these different go-to-market teams. Thank you for providing more information about the background. Sounds like you had some exciting experience there, which we'd love to dive into a little bit more today. But the topic we want to discuss, which is kind of going beyond your early adopters, right? So in terms of traction now, I believe you've kind of been down this road a few times, so you're the perfect person to talk to about this, but that's what we want to talk about, right? The whole, everything that comes to mind when we talk about this stuff to me is always the, the famous book, Crossing the Chasm, but going from, you know, going beyond your early adopters, thinking more about kind of that early majority uh, from a topic perspective is what we want to discuss today. So if you could give us kind of a description and how you've done a little bit more probably about what that takes, how you've perhaps done it in the past, kind of love to get your take just in general um, when it comes to approaching something like this. So I think you nailed it on the head a little bit, right? Where, you know, Crossing the Chasm was a more recent book around touching on a different life cycle of your product and the customers that you're addressing. But even before that, Everett Rogers wrote, you know, the product life cycle back in the early 60s. And he described it as a five-stage cycle of working with innovators to your early adopters, early majority is that middle group, late majority, and then your laggards, um, pretty much the same mindset, but applying it out from the, you know, an analog manufacturing retail setting all the way into a digital software uh, setting. So essentially a refresh of kind of new market, new buyer preferences. Uh, and the way I think about uh, you know, innovators, early adopters, and early majority is really looking at you know, what is their risk profile, and what is their willingness to live with certain pains that they're currently living with? So on the innovator front, these are typically your first customers to try a new product or service. Generally, they have you know, extremely high risk tolerance and they can be considered what I would call base, you know, base jumpers or they're considered risk takers. Uh, and they're open to novelties and new ways of doing things. Your early adopters are, are different from your innovators and I think it's, it's easy to conflate the two but your early adopters are actually less risk averse, but more risk averse than the majority of the curve. And they tend to be more 
uh, you know, influential in nature. They're, they're thought leaders in their market and they want to have that first mover advantage. And so uh, they're, they're really looking at your, your, as your real potential adopters. And then your early majority is going to be far less risk averse than your early adopters. Um, but um, they are willing to take calculated risk, uh, measured risk, and there's a risk reward ratio that they have in their mind that provides value to what they're trying to solve. And so uh, they're, they're often more, um, they often have more limited resources and they're, they're, they're very aware of that finite space. And so they tend to spend wisely or in a discretionary fashion on what products and services they bring in. Yeah, well put. And thank you for making the distinction to differentiating the innovators from that early adopters. That's a key distinct phase uh, that you mentioned as well too. Probably first question I have for you too is in the Crossing the Chasm book, they talk about that the biggest, the chasm in the book, right, is from the early adopters to the early majority. It, do you concur with that as well too? And then that being the biggest kind of um, gap to have to cover? And then why, why is that, if that is the case? So I'd agree that, that it is one of the largest gaps. Um, it's, it's the gap that I've primarily fallen into when I've seen it um, at the companies that I've worked at. So to give you an example, when, when you're solving fit, there's really two layers of fit. And the one is goes before the other. So there's this whole idea of product market fit. And then there's this whole idea of go-to-market fit. So your innovators and your early adopters, they're essentially adopting in your platform, providing you continuous product feedback that allows you to bring customer value to a place where you can then now market and sell into that early majority space. And oftentimes an organization doesn't compute that they've made that transition. They've solved product market fit, but then their go-to-market fit still lags what you know, those early majority folks are, are receptive to. So the tactics and tips and tricks that you've used in the early adopter space, in fact, they may have just come to you. I mean, they might have been more inbound in nature, but now you're having to build uh, entirely new motions internally, uh, whether that's changing your, your marketing message to your customers, uh, how you engage with those customers, and then third, um, maybe even as something as simple as a reference program or testimonials. You know, these, these early majorities, they, they want to spend wisely. They, they're putting their careers on the line by buying your software over something that is potentially, uh, that's already an incumbent in the space. So um, you, we want to make sure you take care of your customers and give them confidence that they're making the right choice. And I think oftentimes that big gap is because of that lag between product market fit and that go-to-market. I think that's a very cool framework to use. And I want to kind of dive into this go-to-market fit topic a little bit more because I'm sure you've seen plenty of this. I know I have as well too. So I'd love to hear more from you with regard to that as a background as well too. But then if you could also talk about, right, I know you've, you've done this a few times with a few companies, but how do you know when is the time to start looking beyond the early adopters and start looking towards the early majority? Like what do the signs start to look like? How do you know that you've made that kind of progress? Great, great, great question. So if I think about uh, indicators, there's your lagging and your leading indicators. A lagging indicator would be your win rates are decelerating or completely cratering on you. Your deal cycles are taking longer. Um, you've, you haven't necessarily identified the right individuals at the companies. Those are, those are lagging indicators, and, and it might be time. You might be already too late to the party uh, to ch change things around. Um, what you want are to look at those leading indicators, and those leading indicators can be surfaced from a, a number of different angles. 
Uh, one is really um, testing for thought leadership uh, with the customer, right? If, if they're not necessarily displaying that thought leadership, they're really looking for more of a followership. They want to kind of gauge and see what others are doing. They want to compare. Maybe they're more judicious and spending a lot of time researching other options. They're looking at build versus buy. And if they're going to buy, they're looking at you and someone else. Um, those are clear classic signs to me that uh, they're, they're more conservative in their search. Uh, they may be aggressive knowing that they have to look for something, but in their actual motion of searching, they're spending time figuring out what's the best among many options. And doing nothing, quite frankly, is an option. And I think a lot of companies forget that. So sitting on your hands and doing what you're continuing to do, uh, you know, to me is a clear sign that you're, you're in that late majority, maybe even the laggard space. Second, it's really looking at, you know, what solutions have they tried already? Um, maybe they've already tried something. So, you know, completely saying to that, to your customer or prospect that, you know, your solution is the first of its kind of all time may not be true. They might be trying to hack their way to a solution. So you want to dig in deep and understand, you know, what, what are you doing already? Um, and then third is really looking at your uh, reassessing your marketing and your sales approaches to try to ask those clarifying questions to get a sense for, you know, are they really an early adopter or early majority? And a lot of your questions should be geared towards risk and, uh, you know, their risk and their tolerance for that pain. I tell you, you've done this a couple of times. Well, not as many, well, you know, maybe twice, I would say confidently. I like the formula. It definitely works. Something you said there that made me think as well, too, was right when you're evaluating the various options, build versus buy versus doing nothing, right? Which, like you said, is can be skipped from time to time, or we, we kind of gloss over it, especially innovators, um, technical people. They seem to think that, right, there's always a better way out there. And that's, that's just kind of a natural way of being for people that are bringing solutions to market. But uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this. When it comes to the potential other options that they might pick instead of going with either your solution or however they do it today, does options such as like do nothing, does that change? Like does the, the majority of the answers change? Can that grow um, or shrink depending on which category of user you're speaking with or at which stage that they're in, right? So like the early adopters versus the early majority. Does the do nothing option become larger with the early majority or vice versa? I'd be curious to hear your thoughts like the symptoms of what you start to hear in terms of their other options when you're evaluating risk start to give you an indication of which category they might be in. Absolutely. So I think there's a level of inertia that sort of can be measured. So you're asking these questions on a, particularly for your outbound leads, right? Your inbound leads, I think there's a stat out there from the folks who, who developed the challenger sale that customers are 57 or 58% through their purchasing decision process by the time they even reach out to you. So those, those are folks are, who are already interested in a solution. And instead of selling to them, I would almost argue that you're helping them make a, a purchasing decision. You're helping them either buy you, buy someone else, maybe because you ran a sales cycle, um, or uh, they're just going to do nothing, sit on their hands. Uh, now, the outbound customers, uh, you know, you're calling them cold, right? So you're, you have to generate awareness, maybe see if there's interest at all. And quite frankly, they might, be, they might have a high tolerance for sitting on their current kind of stack 
or their processes. And to me, that's a clear sign that one, there's a lot of inertia to overcome there. And so in order to get that customer to move, the amount of energy that you have to outpour uh, is, is going to indicate that it's going to be a longer selling motion. Um, so naturally, I think certain customers are going to fall into that late majority laggard space. I mean, you look at, you look at uh, digital technologies and how many companies are starting to now finally digitize those economies. Uh, retail, for example, um, folks say that retail is dead. I would say that bad retail is dying, almost dead now. And that in the time of the pandemic, it's really shown a light on those companies that have created those digital capabilities, or maybe even companies who try to freemium model or a paid trial uh, or added a proof of concept to their selling motion. Um, you know, maybe that was a superior go-to-market model, and some of their competitors are now starting to adopt those tactics. Good point. So I want to hear from you as well too. Can you tell us more about how do we do it, right? So if we've had success, you know, we've had success with our innovators, we've had success with our early adopters. Now we're at a point where we need to tackle the early majority. What does it take to get from one to the next? What do the set of steps look like for you having been through this? Curious to hear more of your thoughts about kind of what you've done at um, Upkeep as well also. And then what role does the data that you're getting back from the customer play in that? So the qualitative customer data that you're able to capture, how do you leverage that in order to make you know, this critical transition? So Upkeep today is in a position where we're still working with those early adopters, uh, but we see on the horizon that they're the early majority. And we know that because we're starting to see us get into conversations that we weren't in just 12 to 24 months ago. And not only that, the feedback that we're receiving is critical to positively bringing that back to the table to our product team to reincorporate into our roadmap. So it gives us, it arms us with the insight of what, what appetite our customers have and where our roadmap is likely to move towards. Now, you don't want to create a, a Rube Goldberg machine where you take every piece of feedback and you over you know, overcomplicate uh, a solution that can solve some of these simple problems or complex problems that customers are facing. Um, but where I have seen success is a company called Vizier. Uh, we were you know, originally thinking of selling to kind of the small mid-market, uh, SMB in the mid-market space. But it turns out that the economics of our business, as well as the solution itself, was more amenable to the enterprise. And those were companies of several thousand employees and upwards. So there was only a handful. It's only a couple thousand companies in kind of North America that you can target to. And so it dictated the need for an enterprise selling motion. And so when we sold to the early adopters, we were selling to those thought leaders, uh, folks who is an HR enterprise analytics solution, for example. So you're selling to, you know, SVPs of human resources or a chief human resource officer. Now that buyer, that persona, uh, they are, it's a new title that's now entering and now has a seat at the executive level table. They're a different type of human resource leader. They're coming in with a heavy data decision, a driven, uh, data-driven decision-making framework. And so uh, our buying process really needed to educate and make aware. So we were almost category making to, to some degree. And you play that out a few years, the category is sort of solidified. You start seeing uh, Gartner, uh, G2, some of these other third-party reviewer sites start to validate, yes, this is a category and it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. And when that changes for a buyer knowing that, okay, well, their sales force for the sales group, 
there's Oracle SAP for kind of my overall executive and finance planning, the ERP, what do I have as a CHRO in my space? And so now you switch this nice to have to a must have, the inertia comes down a little bit, those barriers to entry come down, and you start to notice one, uh, the questions that we were asking uh, are, are, are starting to get answered more commonly. What's your risk tolerance? And we started seeing that, that profile of risk come more commonly. So folks who were less, less uh, who were more risk averse wouldn't come to our table, but now they are. Also, uh, there's a sort of brand recognition that occurs when you're going outbound and, and that has changed for you. So now you start to see that folks start to respond, oh, okay, I know what HR analytics is. I know that we are thinking about it. We, we're not necessarily doing anything about it. Or, hey, we've tried tackling this by hiring an army of internal folks. And we just realized that maybe something turnkey is, is needed. Um, and so I think one, the harbinger is really looking at has, has the kind of incoming feedback you've received out in the market chains, particularly on your outbound. And then in order to prepare for that, you really need to start thinking about how do we gauge and test for those appetites through uh, clear questioning at the sales cycle. Um, and you start doing that at discovery uh, when you're really trying to understand what problems you're trying to solve for. Uh, and then also when you're trying to line up your decision makers, uh, because your decision maker may be the buyer of the software, but not the, they're not the user of the software. So um, that's another thing that I like to work with my sales team members on is real, really remembering who you talk to may not be the person that actually needs to sign checks. Yeah, that's another important distinction. I bring that, um, that one up a lot of, as well myself and that there's a, there can be a distinction between your customer and your user. I refer to your customer as your buyer. Users probably interacting with the product and there may or may not be overlap there. So those are different, also good variables to consider when you're going through this process and making these decisions as well too. And I've heard you mention customer risk profile multiple times. I think that's another good way to think about it. You have to have that understanding as well too. So if you make any assumptions about that, you might guess wrong. So if you're asking the right questions, you should be able to iron that kind of data out to get that information. So that's good, helpful, qualitative data that'll help you get a better understanding and what type of customer am I dealing with? And then as you measure that probably frequency over time, that'll give you a better understanding in terms of like data-driven, what phase are we at from a business perspective? Um, but you mentioned as part of that response as well to the sales cycle, something else that we geeked out about before that I would love to hear you talk a little bit about is what you refer to as that post-sales cycle. I'd love for you to describe kind of what this is for our listeners, how you would describe it, and then what are we looking to accomplish in particular in this phase with the customer? So in the post-sales cycle, and I'll speak for software, it may not necessarily hold true for different industries, but we'll go through an implementation. And so a lot of our softwares are plugging right into kind of number of different data sources that they might have available, whether that's an online or set offline set of data. And so we want to make sure that the customer is comfortable knowing that we have a game plan for how to get them onboarded and set up into our system. Then the second thing that we do is a customer welcome. And so the customer welcome is really an opportunity to introduce a series of account managers or customer success managers that will work with the customer through the lifetime so that they can extract maximum value from our platform. And so there's a number of different activities there that I think are really interesting. One is really looking at product adoption and feature enlightenment. So on the product adoption front, we want to make sure that we live up to the expectations that we've set in our selling motion. With going through the demo and working multiple times through a proof of concept or even a solution-based demo, 
you're really outlining what the capabilities of your system or your platform is to your customer. You want to make sure that they basically can do what they saw during the entire selling motion. The second part is really focusing on new features and new rollouts. So, you know, particularly in the SaaS space, one of the beautiful things is that your subscription continues to get better over time. We actually release either on an agile cycle, new features, new releases, whether it's something minor or something major, the customer benefits because now they're learning how to do something. Now, if you're making a UI change, and this is often the case in Facebook early days, would continue to change their feed, uh, and you would see articles come out on user thrash because they changed something. You know, that whole who moved my cheese book concept comes back into play. Um, so, you know, that's one feature, feature adoption, uh, product adoption, uh, sorry, uh, product engagement. Uh, and then third is really looking at, you know, how do we increase the amount of value that is extracted from your platform or solution? Because if they, one, like your product or solution, and two, they like who you're working with on a, from a customer service perspective, you're essentially raising the switching costs and you're increasing the mind share you have with that customer. That customer is a lot less likely to leave you um, over time. And, and that's what you want, particularly in a, a subscription recurring business model. You want those customers to continue to grow with you. Um, you have these two metrics that I love looking at. One is account churn, which is on an absolute basis. And then you have dollar churn. So let's say you have 100 customers, five customers leave, you have 95 left, you have a 5% account churn. But for example, the, the surviving 95 accounts, they've actually grown. They've landed and expanded with you. So now they add on another 15 bucks or so. So now that 95 turns to 110, your actual net churn rate on the dollar basis is, you know, is negative 10%. You're at 110. And so that's the beauty of a SaaS business model. Um, and that's why I think it's so attractive to many, to many investors. Um, and so the sales cycle, uh, so post-sales cycle is also going to include uh, a kind of customer health, customer engagement. It's a leading indicator to whether they're going to renew and or re uh, they're going to kind of increase their user base or usage base with you. Some excellent examples there. Thank you for sharing, Jeff. And thank you for being here to share your information with myself and the audience. I have two questions for you before we let you go. First one is, what resources would you share with the audience? Hmm. I'm curious, I have your guests um, shared like books or Absolutely. podcasts? Absolutely, yeah, books, podcasts, anything, anything where they can go to learn more about anything that we talked about or anything that has to deal with this world. You've mentioned a couple of books kind of already. Um, definitely, you can feel free to kind of reiterate those. I can link to them. And then anything else that you might recommend as well too where people can go to learn more is, uh, I can also, um, you want to send me any resources after the fact i can include them in the notes as well too but anything you wanted to mention specifically as part of the show that's perfect so we talked about it earlier uh, crossing the chasm if you haven't read it read it i think that, that that's a great place to start and then secondly uh, I, I love listening to podcasts in the morning i particularly love listening to the sales enablement podcast by andy paul and uh, recently just got re really into it so i would leave that for my listeners <clears throat> Thank you, Jeff. I'll include those and the previous book you mentioned as well too, uh, the product lifecycle. And then uh, last question for you is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? I think anyone that's interested in building a high growth business who's curious about marketing sales and customer success can certainly reach out to me. I, I don't have all the answers, but I can always find out. Uh, I'm a lifelong student of how to build customer value, which leads to more revenue. You can find me on LinkedIn. 
under Jeff Ignacio. Perfect. Sounds good. Thank you, Jeff. I'll include that stuff in the notes as well. And thanks for being here and sharing your knowledge and experience with myself and our audience. True pleasure, Sean. The Customer Conversations podcast is brought to you by the team at LearnWhy. LearnWhy integrates with all of your customer-facing tools to organize feedback and extract actionable insights. Empower your team to start growing your bottom line today with insights from qualitative data powered by LearnWhy. You can find out more at either LearnWhy.co or by emailing our team at sales at LearnWhy.co. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Customer Conversations podcast. If you or someone you know has expertise in growth, marketing, or product, please have them reach out to either Sean or Stuart to learn more about becoming a guest on our show. Our team can be reached by email at support at learnwhy.com.